Knowing yourself is not a crime. It doesn't mean that anything is wrong with you. It's in fact a normal part of everyday living um, is, to, is to work towards uh, knowing ourselves. And we've forgotten that and we need to return that into our lives uh, from an early age onwards. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. Welcome back. If we haven't met before, great to meet you. My name is Aaron. We tap into the stories of some of the world's most successful people, and not just successful people, ordinary people too, to understand what made them who they are and how they are collectively making our world a better place. If you're looking for dopamine, inspiration, new knowledge, or actions that you can take today to become a better future self, you have come to the right place. To learn more about us, you can head over to our website, www.transformativepurpose.com and please don't forget to follow rate and share if you enjoy our content everything you see here is run by myself and a small team and we'll really appreciate it and last but not least our mission is to build a global community to inspire enjoy hi good day and welcome back to the new episode on the transformative purpose podcast i'm truly honored excited and pleased that I'm reconnecting with one of the lecturers who used to teach me in one of my subjects uh, at MGSM, Macquarie Graduate School of Management in Australia, more than 12 years ago now. Dr. Steven Siegel is a registered psychologist and he used to teach me a foundation of management thought. It's my great pleasure to have him on the call and I can't wait to have this conversation with uh, Steven. Uh, Stephen is a specialist is in anxiety and depression, uh, two of the common topics that we talk a lot about in the society. And I'm looking forward to understand a bit more about these two subjects, uh, what are some of the things that people can do to prevent that. And if you are diagnosed with uh, anxiety and depression, what is the right path? What are the solutions? Stephen, welcome to have you here. And uh, it's good to reconnect again after so long. Thanks very much, Aaron, and thanks very much for inviting me. I look forward to our discussion uh, on anxiety and depression. Yeah. It, it is a turbulent world, isn't it? How, how do you see how do you see the world like it is today? I mean, compared to when we first met uh, 12, 13 years ago, the world has changed, doesn't it? Yeah, um, and and I think that what's often left out in discussions of anxiety. Uh, and depression is in fact that the, that the, the world uh, provides a context for anxiety. So anxiety is not just something that's uh, suffered uh, because one has psychological uh, issues. Um, anxiety has philosophical and sociological and cultural dimensions as well. And I guess that's the first theme that I would like to speak about uh, a little bit. Um, and, and I'd like to highlight two or three things. Um, firstly, uh, is the fact that we become a highly individualized world. Um, in, in, in many senses, we are alone. Um, if you take the notion of a career, for example, um, let's say 50 years ago, you knew exactly when where you would begin the career and you knew exactly where you'd end the career. Uh, so the path of career development was very 
safe and secure. Um, but today that's not the case uh, anymore. Um, no, no, matter, no matter where we are, um, we, we, we can't read our future uh, exactly. So um, inevitably, many and perhaps most of us will go through some kind of disruptions uh, in our career. Uh, we might think that it's set for life, but after a couple of years, we might get bored uh, with the career. Uh, we might get retrenched uh, from the organization. Uh, we, we might even be very successful, but but not really happy uh, in, in what we're doing. And to me, those are kind of socio-cultural uh, dimensions um, of, of anxiety. And so kind of when treating someone for anxiety, um, I like to also keep in mind those socio-cultural uh, dimensions of anxiety. You, you mentioned a very important point just now, and um, society provides a lot of context uh, for, for anxiety. And you also mentioned that uh, sometimes we could feel that we are very successful, but deep down, there's this level of emptiness and we're not happy. Why is that the case? I think that that is partially the case because people confuse success and self-actualization. Just because you're successful in what you do doesn't mean that you're going to be a self-actualized uh, person. Um, and so for me, uh, what's, what's very important is to bring the idea of self-actualization uh, back into what we're doing. And self-actualization is really about a more well-rounded person, someone who's actualizing all their potential, not just part uh, of the potential. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that that's part of the part of the reason why uh, many people uh, get quite frightened when they found they've been successful, but success doesn't uh, actually give them uh, the adrenaline or the the rush uh, that they thought it was going to give them. Yeah. And self-actualization, what does that feel like? How does how does somebody know that they have attained this uh, self-actualization mindset? Well, I think that firstly, no one is ever completely self-actualized. So uh, it's a journey that one's on uh, towards self-actualization. Um and, and I think part of, part of the, there are a number of factors uh, to self-actualization. Uh, um, I think one, which is kind of quite popular at the moment, um, is the idea of being in a flow uh, with what you're doing, you know, so that you're not kind of distracted or standing back, but you, you're immersed in the flow um, of what you're doing. Um, and you're getting kind of, um, you're not conscious of yourself. Um, you, you're just flowing with what you're doing. Uh, I remember just a story from long ago of a of an Australian swimmer uh, by the name of Ian Thorpe, uh, who was highly successful uh, as a swimmer. 
Uh, and one day after having won many medals, uh, he got into the pool and he found himself in his training, instead of kind of having a rigorous training, uh, he found himself looking at the bottom of the pool and staring at a black line uh, at the bottom of the pool. And that's kind of a, a contrast between self-actualization and not self-actualization. Uh, when we're in a flow, we're in self-actualization. But as soon as we get a bit distracted from that, uh, we move out of self-actualization. I think that's one dimension of self-actualization. I think another dimension of self-actualization is the development of character uh, as people. So uh, again, you can be successful, but still be a horrible person, so to speak. Uh, and often in uh, organizational uh, literature, you know, we speak about the narcissist as getting to the top um, of the CEO. Um, and, and I think be, uh, being, a, being a narcissist is not, is not a well-developed character, um, uh, hasn't developed kind of uh, uh, wisdom, humility, uh, and especially hasn't developed uh, the characters of relating uh, to, to other people. I think another, another dimension to contrast is, let's say you've been successful um, and you don't really know what to do next. Um, and you jump back into the boat of being successful. So you try to be successful, then you try to be more successful, then you try to be more and more successful, and you just get caught uh, by this uh, rhythm. Um, someone who's self-actualized knows how to put success in its place. So an actualized person knows how to develop perspective on all the aspects of their lives instead of becoming just one-dimensional uh, and focusing only on one dimension um, of, of who you are. So it's, it's developing perspective. And in the old days of, of philosophy, that, that was called living the good life. To live the good life that didn't mean just having pleasure and sitting in the sun and so on. It really meant being able to put one's whole life uh, into perspective. So that would, so that one could achieve what's today called well-being uh, in the mental health discourse. You know, well, well-being requires all those different uh, aspects as being brought uh, into uh, perspective with each other. Hmm. Thank you for uh, sharing this these different dimensions. Um, I was wondering if you can shed some light on what uh, these di different di dimensions could be. Uh, you mentioned in order to become a whole person, we should look beyond just looking at our life in, just in a single lens, right? What are some of the different lenses, uh, perspectives, dimensions people could develop in order to have a, a more fulfilled life? So I, I think that today some of the, some of the dimensions are... Uh, being being able to have effective relationships uh, with with other people, um, I think that it uh, um, it also uh, 
includes a state of kind of finding a stillness uh, in oneself um, and not just a busy, busy, busyness, uh, but finding some kind of stillness and calm uh, within ourselves. Um, I think it also means uh, finding meaning uh, in what we do, you know, doing it not just because of the reward that it brings, but doing it because we feel it to be of value uh, uh, to us. Um, and again, going back to another uh, one mentioned earlier, developing a sense of character. Um, and if I just give you an example, maybe, of someone uh, who, with a well-developed character, um, you know, the, the person that stands out for me is Nelson Mandela, uh, the former president uh, of South Africa. He was like really, really well developed as a person. He had good relationships with others. He was physically uh, in touch with himself. Uh, he, 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 had, he knew how to see into situations uh, where, where others were just maybe panicking and being scared. Uh, Mandela could see right through the situation and provide perspective uh, uh, on it. So, so I guess it's people like him, and I suppose it would be figures like Mahatma Gandhi uh, as well. As these, these are icons, and I'm not saying we can become exactly like them, but but these are the icons of of people, you know, who were self-actualized uh, uh, and well developed from all different perspectives. Um, but having said that, um, there was one perspective that Mandela uh, was unhappy about, um, and that was his relationship to uh, his immediate family. Uh, you know, he, he didn't feel he had, well, he didn't see them for 27 years because he was in jail. Um, but that was, that was one area which he, he wished that he had developed uh, more and more. Um, so, so the point there again is nobody's completely actualized. Uh, we're all on the road uh, to self-actualization and we all need to give ourselves the opportunity to develop more than just one side of ourselves. Yeah. And, yeah, and I suppose emotional intelligence would go into that as well, you know. Uh, being able to read yourself, being able to read situations, being able to read uh, different contexts, uh, I think those are important uh, for self-actualized people. Yeah. 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 Uh, thank you. That's that's uh, that's very insightful. And I, I guess in 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 recent years, the search of um, we've seen a search of self-development books, self-help books. Um, there's many talks of uh, purpose discovery. Many people are talking about the uh, the great re-evaluation. And it almost feels as though everyone suddenly has this rush into going into their man cave and whatnot to discover their own purpose. Is self-actualization and purpose discovery the same thing? And what is this sudden rush? What, what do you think that, that caused it? Is, is this because of COVID? Or um, is it because um, 
many generations have spent quite a long period of time in different workplaces and suddenly realized that the the corporate life was not quite what they were what they expected so um i think all of those things actually um i think pur- purpose is part of um the uh, uh reason that people are uh, searching more um and and i think this the search for purpose uh, goes a long way back uh, um actually um i mean it was really in the 1980s and 1990s uh, the lack, that the literature uh, on self on on making meaning uh, was uh, developed and and part of the reason for developing meaning uh, is that uh, me- meaning again uh, well well let's say we've been brought up both in a rational society and in an individualistic uh, society uh ration rationality is good for helping us calculate uh it's good for helping us think logically um um uh, it, it's it's good for our iq but it's not really good for our meaning um it doesn't teach us anything about meaning um and so i think we've developed the rational side of ourselves very well but we haven't developed the meaning side uh, of ourselves or we haven't developed the purpose uh, side uh, of ourselves uh, very well and what the purpose side uh, requires is less rational uh, uh, dominance but more things like storytelling um or what is your dream you know what what do you really dream for uh, in your life and have you ever really given time to yourself to look for what you dream about you know i think most of us grow up in this kind of taken for granted idea um that we want to um well i'm not 100% sure about hong, hong kong uh, but let's say australia and the united states you want to own two cars and a house you know and that's that's the meaning uh, that people have uh, grown up with but now suddenly we see that that's not enough uh, to to give us meaning um and so in that context um you're getting this restlessness and this agitation uh, and this uh, I don't know what to do next um and I think often it turns to drugs and to uh, alcohol uh because of not finding this uh thing called meaning you know so i i think that for the last again about 50 60 years we've underestimated the the part that meaning plays uh, in our lives um and we've just been busy 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 and the kind of search for meaning uh, it disrupts uh, our busyness uh, that we've been into and we get kind of distracted and bored and start finding ourselves asking questions like what am i doing why am i doing it what what is this for you know and and not being satisfied uh, with the answers that come up uh, for those questions yeah yeah and some of these questions are quite terrifying right i remember i went through uh, the same self discovery journey a couple of years back 
a lot of these questions that I ask myself uh, reflecting on uh, living events. I actually didn't have answers for most of the questions that I was trying to ask myself. So how can we get more people to sort of think in this, uh, in this, in this mindset? And how can we encourage more people to ask uh, themselves more, more of these uncomfortable questions? And what's the value of um, really asking ourselves these, these questions? So um, let me say that the, the kind of questioning that we've been brought up with generally um, is a very solution-focused uh, form of questioning. So we, we, we keep on looking for the solutions to a problem, and that's what we habituated uh, into. But questions of meaning uh, are not solution-focused uh, kinds of questions. Um, they are much more uh, open-ended questions. And so what, what underpins these uh, questions of meaning is a sense of developing curiosity, um, a sense of developing kind of wonder, um, a sense of exploration and adventure without having to know the exact answer uh, at the beginning. We prepare to let ourselves go on a journey. And interestingly enough, um, one of the, historically, one of the uh, understandings of philosophy um, is not a theory or concept. It's allowing yourself to go on a journey. And so when we come to meaning, we need to be able to give ourselves permission uh, to go on the journey. But as you say, um, that's also very frightening. Um, and it's also tied up with a lot of anxiety. Um, and in fact, the authors that speak about this kind of anxiety as the anxiety of meaninglessness uh, and emptiness. Um, so, so, so the challenge is how do we turn this anxiety uh, of meaninglessness into the opportunity of a creative, uh, curious uh, search for meaning? Um, and, and I guess, I guess that's where um, a lot of things uh, come into play. Um, I think that uh, coaching or therapy um, is something that uh, holds people. It allows them to be secure in insecure spaces. So it allows people to bring up their, their anxiety uh, around meaning. It allows people to talk uh, about uh, anxiety uh, of meaning. And so I think making that point a bit more general, um, what's crucial is to be able to have dialogue, but dialogue with, with the people who can appreciate um, what you're going through uh, when you're going through uh, those questions uh, of meaning. So, so it's not just reading books. It's also being part of a community um, of, of dialogue. Uh, and, and there's a richness just in the dialogue. You know, once you shift from the anxiety to the curiosity, it also is a shift of your emotions. Um, it's a shift of your mindset uh, as well. And you start to enjoy the journey uh, of discovering uh, meaning. 
and of course, uh, people will discover it uh, in hundreds of different ways. And often people are very surprised by what they discover uh, for themselves uh, on the journey towards meaning. They, they don't expect uh, what they find. Um, and I think that's part of the journey is to be willing to explore um, and not know the end goal uh, at the beginning. And so again, part of our challenge is we have been solutions focused. We haven't been focused, we, we haven't been encouraged to have an explorer's uh, mindset about our lives uh, and about who we are. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, thanks, thanks for sharing that. I actually had a similar, um, I had another conversation um, with a with a life coach, and uh, his name is Matt Link, about uh, his observation. And one of his observations, doing a lot of these coaching with different customers, is that um, he finds that most of his clients really lack self belief. Um, when they try to engage or explore um, with their with their friends, families, and peers, what they are in fact doing are seeking for external validation rather than, like you said, going on a journey, being curious, um, asking the uncomfortable questions that we might not have answers for, which requires a very different mindset uh, for, for purpose discovery. Most of the time, we do not have answers. And the point is not to have come up with answers to these questions and like you were saying um, during our, our, our podcast today, it's really about getting comfortable going on this uncomfortable journey to discover more, to discover more, and to look at this as a as a daily exercise almost, right? So why do you think people have, uh, for, I guess, first of all, do you see a similar trend where uh, people nowadays are living with very little self-belief and are constantly looking for that external validation? And if so, why do you think that is the case? So I, I think it definitely is the case uh, that um, most of my uh, clients in therapy uh, and in coaching um, lack uh, self-belief uh, um, in themselves um, and that uh, many people get caught uh, in, ex in seeking external validation. So one of the ways that often happens in a workplace um, is you want to please uh, people around you um, and you want to please your boss and you want to please uh, everyone around you. Um, but it's but it's never enough. Um, so you, you need to please them today. You need to please them tomorrow. Uh, you need to please them the next day. It, it's never enough, uh, that external validation. Um, and not only is it never enough, it often gets in the way of uh, being responsible and making the correct decisions. Uh, because someone who, let's say, needs to please others is not going to make decisions just ba based on the merits of the case. They're going to have in the back of their mind uh, this whole idea of, I need to please him, I need to please her. Um, and so, so that lack of self-belief uh, has a big uh, impact uh, on people's careers, their relationships, and their development. Um, as to why this is the case, so um, in terms of the schools out of which I come, it's precisely because of individualism 
um, that like really on, on, on a very deep level, we are on our own. We, we don't have kind of traditions and uh, uh, rituals uh, uh, for living that surround us. Um, we, we, we're so much on our own. Um, and uh, some philosophers call that the anxiety of uh, the anxiety of individualism, you know. So it's a very big burden to bear, uh, to be an individual. I think that's not really recognized uh, very often. Um, we tend to want to celebrate uh, individualism. And of course, I'm not undermining uh, that as well. But what I'm saying is there's another, there's the other side uh, to individualism. Um, and that is, we've got no God, we've got no higher authority, we've got no one else but ourselves uh, to uh, take responsibility uh, in situations. And that taking responsibility uh, is very difficult. Uh, and it leads us to second guess ourselves, you know. And I think that's what uh, lack of belief in the self is. It's you, 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 you second guessing yourself uh, the whole time, you know. So, so I think that uh, to understand uh, lack of belief in oneself, again, one has to understand the socio-cultural context um, of this radical individualism uh, in which we uh, uh, live today. You know. hmm. Let's shift gear and let's um, dig a bit deeper, I uh, guess, into these uh, two of the areas that you're very passionate about, um, anxiety and depression. I mean, as humans, we get depressed and we get anxious from time to time, right? But when does it become too much? What are the, what are the red flags? Even intense anxiety can actually be very productive as well. Um, and let me try and unpack that a little bit. Um, um, intense anxiety um, is also the basis of discovering new meanings and new purposes uh, in, in life. So I, I've done some work uh, in leadership, in coaching leadership uh, with anxiety. Um, and uh, one of the things that often comes up in, uh, there is that the leaders have kind of come to a limit of one way of leading. You know, let's say a kind of top-down leading. They've come to the limit of it, but they actually don't know how to carry on uh, anymore. And so they're stuck in this way of uh, uh, leading, top-down leading, and they don't know where to turn. And because they don't know where to turn, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's huge anxiety. They don't know how to carry on. If they reject the anxiety and just try and carry on, uh, they might drink more alcohol or they might drink more drugs uh, or build up other defensive. On the other hand, if they pre prepare to go through the painful uh, and anguishing sense of uh, anxiety, uh, it opens different ways of leading. So I've kind of seen people come in with top-down uh, leadership styles and going out with a much more 
coaching and facilitative uh, leader style and really enjoy working in that way uh, as a kind of coaching uh, leader. Um, and that's where I think anxiety is really transformational. I think in organizations, there's often talk about transformation, but really transformation is a huge thing. Uh, it requires really working through um, your present mindset, letting go of your present mindset, uh, being in the kind of abyss of the unknown and developing a new mindset uh, from there. So I think anxiety is very crucial. Yeah. yeah. So it's almost like we need to separate ourselves, uh, our awareness uh, with the emotion, like the feeling of anxiety, and then asking those questions about why are we feeling anxious in certain ways and really use that anxiety as a motivator and sort of turn that into, into actions, right? Yes. Um, we need to, I, I, I've coined the term, uh, I call it anxiety. Anxiety. And what anxiety is, it contains both anxiety and excitement uh, at the same time. And I think the key is to get that anxiety uh, going. The anxiety on its own uh, is very painful. Uh, connecting it with anxiety, with excitement, is coming out of the abyss um, and, and kind of developing uh, a new sense of purpose, uh, a new understanding of oneself, uh, I guess, in the world. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's a beautiful word. And incitement is almost associating, I don't know if I'm coining the right term here. So it's almost having a default association between anxiety and excitement. So every time you, f you feel anxious and straight away you associate with, um, with the feeling of excitement. I had, a I had a recent experience with my, with my older son. Um, so he's three and a half. He's, has been acting out, you know, is that terrible two, terrible three, terrible four, the different terminologies that as parents we try to uh, give to our, the next generation to, rational, to, to try to rationalize their, their behaviors. Um, but I, I, I did a change um, and it was quite profound. So I started, instead of, I started associating my son with a mirror. So every time he does something um, sort of, that that used to frustrate me or used to ir irritate me straight away i no longer focus on the behavior i can't even see the behavior i only see a mirror and in that mirror i saw an image of myself and i sort of had to change that narrative or that belief system in me in that you know children is just a sponge you know um what they see they do and their behaviors is just a product of the environments of the parenting or the education. And by using this association technique, that really changed my my perspective and my relationship with him because I no longer get frustrated uh, when, when he acts out these days. Oh, so that was, uh, that's been one of my recent discoveries about, uh, about parenting along uh, many others. <laughs> yeah. uh, Stephen, I wanna ask you right about uh, anxiety and depression and I wanna understand about, a bit more about what actually happens uh, inside our body uh, when we feel uh, anxious or, or um, depressed or even unhappy? Um, so I think when it comes to anxiety, there's kind of um, 
um, you know, a, a tightening of the whole body. Um, I, I often find with clients, their hands are not open, their, their hands are fists, um, and they don't realize that their hands are, are fists. Um, and then I think there's also heart palpitations uh, that go on, uh, and, and uh, sweaty, sweaty uh, forehead and sweaty uh, uh, body uh, in anxiety. In fact, I, I don't know uh, if uh, you ever saw that movie Analyze Us uh, with Robert De Niro. And uh, Robert De Niro was a mafia boss. Uh, and he started having these, he started kind of hyperventilating uh, in, the, in the scene, in the movie. Uh, and then he started having pain in his chest. And, uh, and then he started getting very frightened about it. And uh, he got one of his sidekicks to take him to the hospital. Uh, and in the hospital, they did all the tests uh, on him. And the doctor came back to him and said, don't worry, you're not having a heart attack. You've just got anxiety. And Robert De Niro looked at him and said, anxiety? Me have anxiety? Me, the mafia boss, have anxiety? You don't know what you're talking about. And the next thing he was hitting uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the doctor. Uh, and it was done in a, co- a comical uh, kind of way. But, but, but the point here is that often people don't want to recognize, it's harder to recognize anxiety uh, often uh, than it is to say recognize uh, a heart attack. Because the, the thing again about anxiety, when, you, when, when one is caught in the middle of an anxiety uh, attack, uh, uh, there's nothing that you can hold on to. And so you feel extremely powerless uh, uh, in a state of uh, anxiety. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so those are some of, there's also agitation, um, uh, agitation in one's legs uh, as well. Uh, are some of the body signs uh, more uh, of anxiety? I think in terms of depression, uh, there's often a feeling that I'm lazy. You know, uh, often my clients will come in uh, to say they're lazy, um, rather than actually understanding uh, that the laziness uh, is an effect um, of depression. You know, when, when you're feeling really depressed, it's hard to get up. Uh, in the morning, uh, it's difficult to get to get up off the chair, uh, and it also can be difficult to eat, uh, or it can also be overeating uh, as well. Um, so, uh, and I think people often talk slower uh, uh, in a in a depressed uh, state. You know, so so I think those are some of the indicators. Um, of anxiety and depression. Yeah. yeah, I I often have days where I don't want to get up, <laughs> but as, um, it, it rarely, um, I guess, prolong and and, and last for a period of time. What are some of the preventions and, and solutions um, to combat against this feeling of anxiety and, and depression? Um, you know, what are some of the things that people can do more of? And I guess if they do feel um, the anxiety or, or even depression, well, what can they do about it? 
so just now you mentioned there were days that we don't feel like um, waking up. Uh, I mean, every now and then I get I get one of those days. To be honest, I think everyone does, right? <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, what's often said is that it needs to persist for at least a period of two weeks uh, every day uh, to be counted as uh, uh, depression. So yeah. So all of us have uh, uh, one or two days that we. Don't want to get up, uh, um, but it's it's the duration uh, of it. Um, I'm 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 not sure that uh, in terms of what we can do, uh, what we can do. I, I would like to say what what can we do to work with it uh, rather than uh, work uh, against it. So I think that there are so many practices of working. Uh, against it, you know. Um, I mean, people will overwork uh, will be one way um, of uh, uh, kind of trying to push the anxiety uh, aside. Um, uh, people will do... Um, I, I, I've had a, a client who does exercise for six hours a day uh, kind of to combat uh, the anxiety uh, in himself, uh, and it does combat it for him. But it, he he needs to do this uh, for uh, every day, just about uh, you know, for so many hours. Wow, six uh, hours—a lot uh, of time. It's a lot of time. So, so th- these are all um, these are all defensive responses. Uh, I think the first thing to do is to be able to recognize uh, that you're having anxiety. You know, um, and I think it's not so easy to recognize uh, uh, that you're having anxiety. Uh, let me put it in the context of anger. Um, <clears throat> um, usually people who have anger management issues uh, don't see that they uh, uh, don't see that their anger comes from themselves. They think it comes from the situation. So they, they think that others are causing their anger. Uh, they, they don't see that they are responding uh, with intense anxi- uh, anger. And so one of the keys is look at, is the anger disproportionate to the situation? You know, is, is the anger much more than is demanded uh, in the situation? Um, and it's the same kind of thing with anxiety. Is my response uh, to the situation uh, disproportionate? You know, um, like let's say um, when I started lecturing, actually, um, I had quite a bit of anxiety. Um, and one of the things I used to do was to overprepare uh, for a lecture. And I overprepared and I overprepared. Um, and then uh, when I got into the class, uh, I let go of all my preparations um, and just kind of uh, responded spontaneously. So that's just another practice of disproportion. I didn't need to prepare uh, as much as I did uh, prepare. So I think some of the signs to watch out for um, is kind of the disproportionate over-preparing or disproportionate uh, anger uh, or uh, dis- disproportionate uh, 
driving. Um, these are some of the signs to 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 listen for uh, in anxiety. You know, you know, and and there are hundreds of others. Yeah, the key I, is it's disproportionate. Yeah, yeah. I love that part where you mentioned about um, sort of the proportion of our emotions and how is that relative uh, to the stimuli that that we face it right and. I remember sitting in so many of the classes because of the depth of your knowledge. I often, I often got lost because there's so much there to learn. There's, there's so much there, uh, so much, so much to, uh, to absorb, uh, from, from your knowledge. I want to, I want to focus on the future now. So we talked about the individualism and that's driving everyone towards a, a, a busy life. It gets, it only gets busier. And you shared um, a number of stories, Robert De Niro, um, Ian Thorpe's, uh, Nelson Mandela, great narratives. I love those. So I sort of want to talk about the, you know, the solutions, sort of what we can do as a community to support each other. Obviously, different people wear different hats. Some of us are leaders. Some of us, are, like myself, we are parents. Like yourself, you just have your first grandchild, right? Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. So thank given you. that we know what people are struggling with, uh, with mental health, and we also see a trend that more people are opening up um, to their issues because I think before people would, would be afraid that they would be stigmatized if they were to come on and say they had mental health issues. Um but I see that people are proactively coming out to say that they actually had an issue and they're using their own trauma, their life lesson to help other people who are, who are also in need, right? So I like, really uh, much like to, uh, to learn from you. For example, as a leader or manager who are leading teams, uh, whether it is a big teams or individual contributors, how can we support um our team members in the workplace, uh, you know, given this sort of uh, hybrid work and sort of this moment of um, the great reevaluation, whatever you might want to call it. Look, as a leader, what can we do? As a parent like myself or even grand, uh, grandparent like yourself, how can we nurture and support the next generation, right, in the search of, uh, in the search of meaning? And for principals and, and school teachers, right, how can they better prepare and um, sort of educate, not just the rational side of their students, but also the emotional side to facilitate that uh, maturity uh, so that they can go on their, their own self-discovery journey. So yeah, um, so yeah, three perspectives as leaders and managers. So what can they do in the workplace as parents and also as uh, educators? What can we do to support the, the next generation? I'm not sure that my answer is going to be specific enough, but I'll just start out with it and see where it goes. Um, in ancient Greece, um, there was this idea of know yourself. Know yourself. And it wasn't just one or two people. It was kind of painted all over uh, ancient Athens. Know yourself. So what, what was present in, in, in ancient Athens um, was that actually knowing yourself is something that you start off from uh, at, at an early age, really at the age where you be, start to become conscious of yourself 
in what you're doing. Um, our, our society hasn't kind of, um, it hasn't uh, given much value or credit uh, to the notion of knowing yourself. So um, I, I, I think that any practice of knowing oneself uh, is, is important for dealing with our children, uh, deal, dealing uh, with uh, the people. Do, do, do we know ourselves? Um, and as leaders, are we really committed to bringing out the best uh, in other people? In other words, are, are we willing to uh, bring out some self-actualizing parts um, of, of other people? So, so I think that um, at the moment, the kind of dominant forums in which anxiety is dealt with are kind of meditative practices, uh, psychotherapy, uh, some coaching. Um, and, and I think that we're also seeing little groups of people getting together uh, to, to form uh, a circle uh, to discuss the lived experience. Um, of, of anxiety. Um, and so I, I think that we need to be able to kind of say knowing yourself is not a crime. It doesn't mean that anything is wrong with you. It's in fact a normal part of everyday living um, is, to, is to work towards uh, knowing ourselves. Um, and we've forgotten that uh, and we need to return that uh, into our lives uh, from an early age uh, onwards. Yeah. Yep. Great, Stephen. Um, learned a ton today from you, and there's so much to, to think about. Because on and off, um, people come to me with different issues. Uh, for instance, I, I, had a, I had a lady who came to me and... She opened up and told me that she tried to commit suicide uh, about a year ago, uh, recently got diagnosed with bipolar. So many people are having uh, different sorts of uh, mental health issues. Um, but for a lot of these people, there's no one they, they could turn to. And I think today you really spend a lot of time just clarifying how did we get to this stage, right? This whole individualism um, and sort of the new values, uh, the the impacts that I guess technologies have also uh, brought to our life. Um, sort of the definition around anxiety and depression. And you also corrected me um, instead of thinking about how to combat against them, uh, we should really be thinking about how to how can we work with them, how can we identify them, separate from uh, those emotions, and explore them. You know, why are we feeling certain ways and really try to use them as motivators and turn them into actions, right? I think that's that's often an area where a lot of people um, people struggle with. So recently, um, just before we, we close off, uh, you know, our, our session. So recently I started uh, asking, you know, uh, some random questions some uh, <laughs> to all my podcast guests. And I thought I'll also try that with you because uh, I think that that's quite interesting and people can also know uh, more about you as well. Um, so uh, if you're ready, <laughs> Stephen, I'm just going to ask you uh, three, three questions uh, on the fly. What is your favorite question that you like to ask yourself? Well, that stumped me. <laughs> so um, 
Yeah. I, I, I think that the favorite, uh, the, 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 the favorite uh, question that I like to um, ask myself is, um, I, th- I think it's got a lot to do with my being on the journey. You know, it's, uh, a- am I paying enough attention uh, to the journey uh, that I'm on? Uh, what are the ways I'm trying to escape uh, my journey? Because again, I don't think it's either or. It's kind of one's on the journey, one gets off the journey. So am I on the journey? Uh, what, what, uh, what is the purpose of the journey? I think that these questions have actually followed me ever since I was a teenager, you mm. know, um, because actually I had anxiety quite early on in my life, in my uh, 16, 17, 18, you know, and I, and I think from there I've developed this kind of sense of, you know, am I, am I on the journey? Uh, is it exciting? Is it full of excitement? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks. Thank you. Um, second question. So I'm, I'm thinking, can you give us a quick hack or quick shortcut when someone feels anger? What's the quick thing? What is that one quick thing which um, you like to do or you've seen somebody doing that can sort of give them um, an extra moment that they can process this anger before they commit to an action. Yeah. Okay. So the whole key, as you've said, is that just that moment uh, um, that people uh, can uh, uh, can can tune into uh, in themselves. Um, I guess uh, um, um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's a discipline. Um, it's, it's a discipline of learning to listen to your body, you know. Um, like, uh, I, th- I think that, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I, sometimes I'm angry and uh, it gets the better of me, you know. But sometimes I'm angry, but there's another voice inside of me saying, hang on, uh, just watch out a little bit, you know. And that kind of uh, gives me the moment uh, I, I think that tactics that people sometimes use is kind of getting off the chair uh, and walking around the block uh, or something like that uh, every time one's in a uh, an, an angry uh, mode of doing some. So it's so some kind of little rituals or behaviors that allow things to settle down a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, I gotta say, every time I see you on and off camera, you're so composed. It's very hard for me to even envisage that you you, you ever get angry. Um, so my my final question is: um, Now that you have a grandchild, what is the one thing that you want to teach him or teach him or her? So it's, it's uh, so it's actually two grandchildren. Oh, you got two. Sorry. My, daughter, <laughs> my no, my daughter had twins. Uh, so. Um, um, yeah, what, what I'd like to teach them is love. Uh, that's, that's what I would like to uh, have them up, love um, and learning to look after themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I, for me, I think in today's world, you have to be able to look after yourself 
it doesn't matter. You can be married. Um, you still need to. You still need to be able to look after yourself, and that comes right back to the beginning again of individualism. You know, we 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 have to look after ourselves. Uh, we can't expect our spouse to live to look after us, or if if we do, if they do support us, and then we get divorced. Um, how are we going to cope uh, with that situation? So for me, it's like I, I, I try and instill in my kids a sense of love uh, and also uh, that they must be able to look after themselves. Yeah. Perfect and wonderful. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for taking your time out to have a chat and have a, have a conversation with me. I've learned a lot uh, from you whether it was uh, 12, 13 years ago or this conversation. And thank you for, I think, clarifying how important it is for everyone to learn, just to learn a bit more about what is happening around the world and the implications, um, all of these technologies and noises, uh, distractibility, which have on our life. And I think that's that's very important. And... Um, yeah, and again, congratulations to uh, to your two uh, grandchildren. I uh, hopefully I can make my way back to Australia some sometime this year, if not next year. And I think it would be great to uh, have a fin- finally have a coffee with you after so many years. It'd be lovely. Yeah, yeah. All right. It'd be great. Thanks very much. Thanks, Stephen. I hope you enjoyed the chat. I always say our life is very much like discovering what the next chapter is in our own book, and what we do today can change the narrative in the next chapter. Our life given by nature is short, but it's not the duration that matters. What matters more is how many meaningful things we can do and how many people we can help in our life. I hope you have gotten some inspiration and new ideas about what you can do differently today. And as you are doing it, remember to also change the ecosystem so that you can sustain it. I firmly believe our world will be a much better place if all of us are focusing on becoming a better future self together the people we love. See you in the next episode.